Hey, what's up? This is your girl, Diamond Styles, and I am the master chef, cooking you up something succulent and divine. It's your boys out here, and we are serving hot talk and cool iced tea. And I'm Mia Mix, here to set the tone and make sure the mood is right. So come on in and get comfortable. Pull up a chair, have a seat. You can even take your shoes off. Wait, not if your feet is down. <laughs> oh, hell no. Welcome, Welcome to Marsha's Plate. The time has come for you to be the change you want them to be, yeah. No more running around filled with all hypocrisy, yeah. It starts from the inside, it spreads wide, and everything will be alright. Join the conversation. Hashtag Marsha's Plate. Oh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We want to hear what you guys have to say. You can also help us build community by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash Marsha's Plate. By contributing to this podcast, you help us continue our powerful work to change culture one episode at a time. So let's get started. Hey, what's up? This is your girl, Diamond. How are you? I am here... And I have a special guest from over the pond. <laughs> so how do you pronounce your name, first of all? Kachenga. Yeah, as long as you like, just deliver it with that African strength, so y'all don't mind. <laughs> yes. Kachenga. <laughs> My father's firstborn. So, oh. Yeah. Basically, Mufasa wasn't ready to have a trans daughter, but yeah, alas, you know, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> so, you are a writer. That's why I know you as. You um, are a trans advocate, and you have been supporting my work for a long time, and I've been supporting yours, and I wanted to have you here because I wanted to make a connection with some trans folks over in the UK because that is one of our largest demographic outside of... You know, outside of the um, U.S. And so yes. I to see, uh, Exactly. So I wanted to see what the state of transness is over there. So I said, who is the perfect person to come on than you? So I was like, sure, come <laughs> on. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I'm not there right now, but as a British national, and yeah, I'm from North London, born and raised. So yeah, I'm... More than ready to talk about the state of my country. <laughs> Where it's like, who's the most embarrassing? You know, it's in the UK, yes. You know, we'll have Brexit and you'll have Trump. And, you, know, you know, we've got loads of coronavirus deaths. You've got loads of coronavirus deaths. <laughs> I think we got y'all. I think we got y'all. <laughs> Just. Y'all trailing behind. Y'all got to catch yeah. up. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, to be honest, in the in the oh, in the imperialist Olympics, OGs, you know. So yeah, you know. we the OGs, man. <laughs> That's what it is. So before we get started, tell me, tell the audience exactly um, what you do and what um, your place in community is there. Sure. 
you know, I'm a hustler. Like, and as we um, are. <laughs> um, what I discovered was that um, when I transitioned, I then became unemployable. And this was, you know, in the British sensibility, you know, oh, it's because you're overemployed or, you know, or maybe that one's not right for you, maybe it's underemployed, whatever. But <clears throat> in terms of, you know, just the general state of play, I just found that I was not able to um, employ myself through the legitimate mainstream channels that I got used to because before, um, I transitioned, I was kind of muted. You know, I was the token and, you know, I was seen as like non-threatening and everything. So um, I then I then went to rehab because I had a um, severe issue with um, drug and alcohol addiction. And this December, I will have been sober for five years. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I know. Still here one day at a time. <clears throat> but one of the benefits of um, getting into recovery was that I discovered that I was a writer. So um, I was in rehab and that's just all I could do. Um, I had a copy of Janet Mock's Redefining Realness as well. So along with my sobriety literature and stuff, I was also reading that. And, you know, I left rehab with like a mission to tell my story, the story of other people, those who are marginalized. And I also decided to get involved. Um, I needed to give back because I knew that the only reason that I had survived homelessness and everything was because people had taken time out of their lives to support girls like me. So it started with writing for Bent Bars, I volunteered for them as well, doing admin, but Ben Bars is an LGBT prison pen pal service. And so I started to write to trans girls in prison. And because of that, I learned about um, TGJIP, the um, yeah, Miss Majors organization out in the Bay Area. In San Francisco, yeah. Right, and stuff. So because of that, I then started to, and then I, when I came to the, I come to the US in like, um, the late thousands and um, I met Angela Davis and I read Our Prisons Obsolete. Uh, um, so when I started to get involved with Bent Bars, um, I was compelled to like learn a lot more about, you know, abolitionist politics and everything. <clears throat> and so that went really well. And I made connections with girls on the inside that were like just truly transformative. And then, um, Black Lives Matter reached out to me, Black Lives Matter UK, and to support um, us. We were doing a vigil outside the um, prison in North London, outside Pentonville, so they came on to support, and so I got involved with them. And because I was involved with them in terms of like, doing like social media stuff, like, I think I was kind of like Facebook coordinator of sorts, and I started to get a few media connections. So Galdem which is a women um, and non-binary people of color media platform out here. <clears throat> they gave me my first writing assignment, which was writing about um, Chimamanda and Gozi Adichie, which you made a video out of. I'm sure I remember watching it at the time. Um, and stuff, and yeah, that was 
you know, I really want to try and make it like nuanced and stuff because I know that journalistically, like people love you to be like angry and reactive and stuff. But this was like my auntie, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, and stuff. So you know, like there were like you know bum notes of disappointment, but I was like really trying to make sure that you know I didn't want to. <clears throat> cast her out and have her cancelled and like you know destroy her books and stuff so I got used to having an intersectional approach to various issues in my writing and so because of that I came to the attention of Wear Your Voice magazine um and so yeah I was um, writing for them for a long while and then I just kind of built step by step so um I then went to write for Vice and ID and Dazed and then um, British Vogue got in touch in like November 2018 when they're doing a trans rights campaign and so I wrote for them quite a bit last year and then most recently I did my first video essay for Netflix on disclosure and stuff so yeah it's been the wonderful uh, like little ascension but you know like we're in this um, you know this digital time where we're supposed I know that there's been an expansion in media and there's more of these platforms, but when I read um, Dr. Tressie McMillan Cotton's um, book, Thick, a collection Thick. of essays. Oh, literally. I mean, I, I, she gathered me. She, she got me right together. Cause here I was thinking I was all special, you know, and stuff like not knowing that, you know, this like think piece industry is like a real thing, you know? And I'm, you know, I'm here feeling bad about myself that, you know, this, these editors, you know, like shunting me a few um, shillings and shekels and things. I don't know why. And yeah, this is part of, you know, the suppression of our communities, you know, never really getting the paid um, right, um, staff position and stuff. So I was always on the outside of things. So yeah, you know, freelance without the glamour. Mm-hmm. And then... And, um, you know, I'm half Jamaican, half Zimbabwe. And I was, I was raised in a Pan-Africanist household. So my parents, <clears throat> you know, are surrounded by um, radical black literature of the diaspora. Um, you know, um, my dad loved Paul Robeson. And, you know, my mother was just like, yeah, surrounded us with all the black feminist literature that we can handle, the Alice Walkers, Toni Morrison, Zora Neale Hurston, Dorothy West, you know, so I was raised <clears throat> with all of these books. And it, I was my parent, my dad was a teacher, my mom was for the local government, so very kind of like lower middle class, very black respectability, not kind of like, you know, you guys have like the Jack and Jill sort of yeah. <laughs> stuff, wasn't um it didn't have that sort of formality to it and we were just kind of yeah north london's um black low middle classes not so not not the money but the sensibility and you know everyone having all my parents friends having had a colonial education in africa or the caribbean Mm. um yeah i was raised to see my blackness like diasporically so that explains a lot because you Mm. Because you're explaining how you make connection with Black Lives Matter in um in the UK, and mm. you know how you you know the, your work has connection with people over here in the US. 
So give, mm. give me some kind of, um, is there a direct connection between actions taken here that affect the UK? I think more so now. Trans community? Because I see like with the, um, you know, with the uprising based on George yeah. Floyd, that there was a big uprising in the oh, UK as well. Global. Global. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because I'm in Berlin right now, and, you know, yeah, you're seeing, like, BLM graffiti in, like, the suburbs, and, yeah, you know, it's a whole thing. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I think there's a... Obviously, there's been a globalisation, and the impact of globalisation um, means that we're, able, we're receiving the news at the same time. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> even taking into account um, this past weekend with... Um, our three girls in LA, um, receiving at the same time. You know, it's the last. You, it, it might be, you know, on your phone in the afternoon. It's what I see just before I go to bed. So you know, we are receiving um, news at the same like pace, same cycle, etc., and concurrently. So that is definitely happening. What I would say though is that, particularly from the UK and the US standpoint, um because of like US cultural imperialism, we were receiving like a deluge of all of your products. And for us as black people, we would have like a few shows on UK television. We had The Real McCoy, we had Desmond's and things. But, you know, I, when I growing up, I was so enamored with the Cosby show. And, you know, my parent, my mother bought um, Essence and Ebony and everything. And you put, you, you pay, it was a bit more expensive, but we were, we were just really dependent on that just for, um, just for ways to speak about blackness and speak about ourselves. And like the waves of black culture, I loved like the late, at the end of the late nineties when, Neo Soul waved over with the Lauren Hill, the Erica Badu, and the Jill Scott. Right. And right. So it was, it was rich. And so we were really receiving all of the Moishas and the Sister Sisters and everything. That was all coming towards us. I think with um, the expansion of media, there has been a bit more of a dialogue mm. um, and stuff. So, you know... It's been great seeing, you know, you guys like watching I May Destroy You and, you know, certain <clears throat> people in hip hop pay attention to grime, you know, Drake loves us, you know, <laughs> stuff. So um, there is a bit more of a dialogue, but I wrote about um, for my, um, <clears throat> my friend's media platform, um, Dweller, which is um, it's a media platform about um, black techno um, DJs and stuff, and I was writing about just the responsibility that we have, you know, because I know that I am exotic everywhere but the UK. Right. <laughs> so I know when I came to the US, you'd like, because of my accent and everything, I was treated as, you know, oh, not like those blacks, you know, so, you know, there's kind of your, you know, we're stratified um, against each and other. People, do, people don't understand that. You don't understand. Mm. One of the reasons why every time a British actor comes over and gets a acting job, 
there's this dialogue within our um, African-American community mm. about why y'all couldn't find any African-American actors. Why do y'all mm. keep coming over here, da-da-da-da? And I was like, we know that anything, whether it be hair, features, color, accent, anything that does not connect you to African-American <laughs> makes you exotic in America. So mm-hmm. if you have the voice, oh, if you are from the, the motherland, you, mm-hmm. are, you are just something different. You're not these ratchet, urban, ghetto, African-American from here that's lazy, that's da-da-da-da-da, all the racist tropes. When mm-hmm. you have something special about you, yeah. you are a different kind of black. Because what the, um, what the inference is that, you know, that the accent that we have means that we've had some sort of superior education. Mm-hmm. And you know, so, you know, they're a bit... Milk- <laughs> but conversely, the thing is, when... Obviously, I completely sympathize with your subject position. But and what I think is absent from that conversation is that black actors go to the US because they can't get work in the UK. There's just... They're not getting employed. The jobs aren't there. And so the path is that they'll go to a very decent drama school. They'll go to the Radas, the Lambdas, the Central School of Peach and Drama. You know, they'll do their Shakespeare's, they'll do their Beckett's, et cetera, et cetera. And they'll get out and there's no jobs for them. And so, you know, and then they look over across to the US and they see, oh, crime dramas and, you know, maybe, you know, Kerry Washington's going to go on maternity leave or something, you know, and stuff. <laughs> Just swindle my way in. And I think when there's um, when black British actors come to the US, you know, I don't know, but I'd like intimately, but I imagine that, you know, the schmoozing possibilities are just a bit broader. You know, you go to a few parties, everyone likes the way you talk, they think you look really smooth and really cute. And conversely, when you, when African Americans come, to the UK and Europe in general, there's this veneer of cool, you know, like there's nothing that um, <clears throat> excites, um, there's nothing that excites our whites more, basically. Than a than, cool American. <laughs> literally, because also there isn't that level of guilt, you know, because <clears throat> it's very, it, for them it's like, it's kind of, there's a cleaner break, you know, I don't have any familial connections to you know the plantations in Alabama, Louisiana, and Georgia and stuff. Until and so I go to my ancestor DNA and it takes me all the way to the UK, <laughs> Great Britain, and da 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 da. da. <laughs> you know, they got around. <laughs> but yeah, there's. I think it's interesting for us from an artistic perspective. Because, you know, we have this like long tradition of um, moving to each other's countries to escape the oppression that we've been um, grown up with, like with James Baldwin, Josephine Baker, you know, the, like, that <clears throat> the, con- the conditions that they were living in were so oppressive that coming over here, cashing in on their re- American exoticism, but also enjoying a certain level of freedom and liberty because um, they just, they just, you're not impressed in the same way. And for me, 
<laughs> and I want to make that very clear. It's not that they're not oppressed. It's they're just yeah. not oppressed in certain that that exactly. It feels fresh. That's <laughs> it. So you know, you got used to a particular kind of shackle, and you go somewhere else, and like, oh, these ones got velvet on them. Yes. <laughs> Exactly. And like I was saying, you know, I, was, um, I come from a, a very low middle class family, but we always had the opportunity to travel. And so my parents always took us on holidays and my family spread out quite well. My grandma had um, 10 children <clears throat> who, yeah, and so I've got aunts in Tennessee, Georgia, Florida, Mexico, China, um, and they're Jamaican. So, you know, wherever they go, they've always got two or three jobs. You know, <laughs> but what I think is like, I, I mentioned that because um, with my dad's side, with my dad being Zimbabwean too. Now, we were always taught that, that the diaspora, the African diaspora in particular, was open to us, that there were places where you could go and find family and, and, even if it's not literal, that you can at least go find somewhere where you can feel like somewhat familiar. And so like, there's something that happens with, when you get a bit too loud on the UK, so if you get a bit too outspoken, you know, what our white pundits love to say, you know, if it's, if it's so racist here, why don't you leave? You know, because, and it's a literally, it's a very kind of, um, it's just a it's a it's a newer way of saying you know go back to Africa, go back to, exactly. Um, but you know because of my, my um, particular like class position, I've been kind of like Viola Davis, you know, with the Celine handbag. <laughs> I'm like, okay, <laughs> literally, I do not need to stay where I'm not wanted, and um, maybe because. Um, like in terms of my education and where I went to university and that sort of thing, I um, was raised. Oh, I came into contact with like you know the concepts of like the Afropolitan and whatever. You know, there was this like the um, just that like the black bourgeois kind of like modern mover and shaker that you raised. You know, you were able to like you know just <clears throat> pop over somewhere with your nice little woven bag and stuff, and you can you can get by. I think before before um, the BLM um, art surge in 2013, there was a bit more of that kind of shallow, you know, kind of like, yeah, just like cheap, colourful, you know, I can go anywhere kind of. But I think that that aesthetic particularly, because I think it was more predominantly more an aesthetic than a, a live reality for many people. But I still... I've always wanted to focus on my own agency and see like, how can I move away from the worst of the violence and stuff. And yeah, right now with everything that's going on, I'm really aware that even I can do that, but most of the people from my communities can't do that. And it's been my proximity to whiteness by rich white men in relationships and sex work and stuff that has given me the ability to elide a few situations and move into experiences that have been fruitful for me.
um, yeah, writing professionally is not something that's like easy and open to everyone. It's a really elitist um, way of life. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm really conscious about it. If I hadn't had particular relationships, if I hadn't gone to a school in a particular area or met a particular man at a particular time, it probably wouldn't have happened for me. You're listening to Houston's own MP Trans 101. Now listen, I know that what is basic Trans 101 for me could just be the beginning for you. So this is for your basic ass. basic for me in this life could be just the beginning for you. So I love to research and find little gems that I can share with y'all during Trans 101. And this was a gem I found recently that I wanted to share with y'all. And this is a clip from early 2010 from Lewis Mitchell, who lived in the Castro district of San Francisco, which is a famous LGBT area of San Francisco. We have the Castro Cultural District and we have the Transgender Cultural District that is helmed by Arya Saeed. All these districts were created in San Francisco now and they're currently running now. I think the Castro District was created in 2019. The Transgender Cultural District was established in 2017. One of the main reasons why they were created was because gentrification. They were coming in just buying, the people who can't afford it were coming in, just buy up everything and push black and brown people, gay people out of the area. And it wasn't just, you know, rich, white, straight folks. It was actually rich, well-to-do gay people too. So of course, racism reared its ugly head in our communities as well. But these cultural districts were created to preserve that culture. So this is a clip of Lewis talking about how during the 80s and the 90s, he describes the tension between communities of color and the white gay male community during that time, which he witnessed as an active member of Legata, which is the Lesbian and Gays of African Descent Association. So here's Lewis talking about what was going on during that time when they were gentrifying and pushing black people out of the community. Um, gay couples were really largely at the root of gentrification of a lot of largely black areas in San Francisco. And when that was raised as issues on various forums, um, they really just couldn't get like what the problem was. And then a few years later, when the only people who could afford to buy homes in the Castro were straight couples, because of the loss uh, to death of people who had passed away from AIDS-related things, and because they had priced their community so far above and beyond what anybody else could afford, the only people who could afford to be there were, were straight couples. And they were just really bent, like, what's happening to the culture of our neighborhood? And I have to say, and this is perhaps, uh, this, is, this is me and my own human shortcoming, I could give a shit at that point. I'm like, hmm, I don't know. I don't remember you being really bent when you were taking over the Western edition. So, I don't know. You guys will work it out. 
now now perhaps you, you will have a greater thoughtfulness when you go into another community and erase the culture that was there before you. But I, I doubt, I, cynically I doubt that that will be the case, but I, I, I wished that I had been able to appeal to my more mature side to really be able to um, build a bridge there and to paint some pictures and say, you know, I know this is painful and hurts, and I know how important the culture of this community is to you, but I want to draw a line to this experience because I want you to really get it, that here we're a group of potential allies in this fight you're waging over here that you missed the boat on and try not to do that the next time around, but I just wasn't there. I was, uh, you know, in some strange ways, I was, uh, I was glad to see them experience that pain. You know, and I wish that I had had a different level of maturity to do something different with that, but I did not at that time. So basically, the white gays came in and pushed the black and brown folks out. <laughs> they let capitalism take over and exploit the black and brown folks, but then when the cis has straight start to come in and take over because they're a little bit more privileged because they can afford to come in and take over and change the culture of the district, then they want to be concerned about culture and concerned about, oh my God, we have to preserve what we had. But, you know, you weren't thinking about that when the people that you were exploiting was losing culture as well. That's why when trans people say that it's really important that you are an ally, it's really important that you are an accomplice, it's really important that you are a comrade in these struggles to dismantle these systems because these systems are set up to where if you are the exploiter, it's going to turn right back around and you're going to need allies. You're going to need somebody who supports you. You're going to need somebody who is in your corner with you so that you can stop those things from happening when it's your turn to be exploited. So I wanted to share that with y'all and I hope y'all enjoyed it. This has been Trans 101. Oh my God, I want to thank all of our new patrons this week. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yay, 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 yay. So not only are you helping to sustain this particular podcast, you know, I also donate to other podcasts. I donate to other organizations. I have my finger on the post of the community and I know a lot of grassroots organizations that are doing great work out here so you're not only helping to sustain us you're helping to sustain other people in a community because I put my money where my mouth is you know that's just the kind of bitch I am community is fuck <laughs> so thank you I really really appreciate you and if you have not become a patron why have you not? You can donate as low as a dollar a month. It doesn't matter. Anything helps. Please. Do I have to play Sarah McLaughlin and show you puppies? Like, what do I have to do? Do I have to do resort to what the white people do to get you to give them money? <laughs> All righty. Anyway, thank y'all. And the Patreon and PayPal link is at the bottom. Back to the show. So there is a... We were talking about it in our initial conversations about the different kind of areas that trans women particularly are in, like, you know, and even other gender nonconforming people mm. in um, certain parts of 
the working class spaces and you know right. it was something that you would call um the cancelist the um council estates and then mm -hmm. the um tower block culture can you explain mm -hmm. those different things because we i want people to understand that although they're under different names we have these same exact mm -hmm. sexes in america and that <laughs> yeah. same racism and the same caste structure is right. maybe call something different, but it's the same exact thing. Explain that to me. So yeah, in a European context, basically, um, the council estate or the tower block will be the equivalent to your project. And so, um, and in France, for example, in like Paris and Marseille, um, like working class and um, black brown Arab communities are on the outskirts of the city so they will be called les banlieues like you know the the, the suburbs and so um the brutalist um architecture of like the post-war period you know the huge tower blocks and, like you know really boxy like you know ready-made communities <clears throat> exactly how so in like new york like the marcy projects all right. those buildings and in Chicago, Caprini Green, where, mm -hmm. you know, it's just buildings erected to be, um, you know, maybe not have the same history, but what they are right now. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and it's like, it's, it's a kind of, it's a place where I always feel like a dream has died. Because um, when I went to Marseille and I saw this, the architects called Le Corbusier who created these um, tower blocks. And what his thinking was that, you know, that you would like elevate living from like off of um the streets you know everything would be in would be contained within the building scene you'd have your shops there you'd have your nursery there you'd have your playgrounds your basketball courts your football fields etc etc and in outside marseille there's still like um a couple of buildings that he originally designed and then also others that him was in the middle of London, a place called the Barbican, um, where rich white people live very well, you know, if they because they sit to um because they receive they continue to receive investment. Now, <clears throat> the for it, they, unfortunately they built too quickly and eventually the investment just stopped. And so the working class um, communities that live there now, you know, they just, they're so gray, they're so depressing, but <clears throat> they are still communities. And so for us as um, queer, trans and gender non-conforming people, you know, in living in these communities, um, I think there's often the belief that we're some New fandangled 1987, you know, kind of. <laughs> uh, <laughs> gender, but um, I was always very aware that the one who was that the most visible um, gender non-conforming one would would take the sins for the whole community. So, like for yeah. my. For my mother growing up in Jamaica, for example, she would, you know, they always say, oh, no, I don't, there's no gays around, there's no trans around and stuff. But then, like, that's not true because she would say, no, there was this one guy called Cutie. And she would talk about Cutie who would be walking around and he just had a little special walk. And he just had a walk and she did the walk. 
You know, <laughs> so she said, yeah, no, him, yeah, he was definitely. And she said, my, my mum would always say, well, yeah, you know, I mean, there must have been others because, you know, he would need someone to be gay with, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, right, mama, clock that tea. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But then also for me, I found, um, I think it's a phrase you use, um, a little sugar in the tank. <laughs> you know, I, I, was, I was incredibly swishy from a very young age. Um, what do y'all call it? Um, oh, um, what do we call Um, just puffy. Like, you know, puffy. <laughs> puffy. <laughs> It's a bit sweet. If it's Jamaican, a little bit sweet. Oh, yeah, a little bit sweet, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, can't, I can't really go any further because it's, it's just too blue. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I found, not my parents didn't anticipate that they would have a child who would be carrying the sins of the community. And I really was because I was um, I was easily identifiable. It's very visible, and I was also very vulnerable because I was um, so visibly feminine and feminine. Even though I would be harassed, like verbally and physically, I was also very sexually. Like people would just identify you as someone who was. Um, worthy of being um, othered, but also who they could do stuff to, and no one would care, no one would find out. No, you know, they would. You know, there was there was a whole culture that there would be this one person in the community who, you know, would be treated in a particular way. And so, I don't think it was until I got to organize um, political spaces and. Um, university and stuff where I found my people and yeah discovered that show I mean, that's not quite true I was reading a lot of James Baldwin growing up um so yeah I read like Giovanni's Rue at the age of like 12 13 and I knew of <clears throat> I knew of trans people but it just felt impossible because they were just so distant and glamorous like in the 90s it was like always like it was like winning the lottery i just i couldn't like there wasn't anyone nearby who i could say oh okay you know i'm just i'm gonna become friends with her find out where she gets her minds from and transition myself like because um of the way that i was treated and spoken about and felt about myself you know being fat black and you know told how ugly I was all the time. I didn't feel like I was eligible to be the transsexual glamazon that um, I've grown to be. <laughs> it, it was a barrier. It felt like a barrier. Right, exactly. And stuff. So with that, <clears throat> it took me escaping my communities in North London um, in order to, you know, fully manifest and find my people and fall in love and all of that sort of stuff. But um, in doing so, you know, I lost contact with a lot of, um, I, lost, I lost contact with everyone, basically. Like, I've, obviously, I have my best friends and my sister and everything, but I needed to move away from my own safety. And in doing so, 
when I then came into political um, um, political organising, it was, um, I always felt like I really couldn't go back with everything that I was learning. Because, yeah, I was born in 1985, and so much was going on around me and I thought that they were just individual cases. I didn't know what was, I, I didn't have the language. I didn't know what was systemic. But, <clears throat> which is unusual because my parents met in Brixton in South London in the early 80s. And they met on um, a campaign. It's called the Scrap Sus campaign. Um, basically, the police used to have these laws, the sus laws. And what that meant was that they were able to stop people who they suspected of being about to commit a crime. And so obviously the people that they felt suspect, suspicious of tended black. to be black. <laughs> oh, oh well, Jesus doing the same way as us. <laughs> they just be sitting in the car, you know, kind of, oh, looks like that. That nigger looks like they're niggering, you know? <laughs> um, and so, so what would happen was in the city is that, you know, these young people would just be disappeared, you know, um, and their parents would have to go down to the police station and find out what they were taking it in for and all that sort of thing. So <clears throat> my mother was working at the Brixton Law Centre um, and my dad um, did Massey University and he were, came there to do the statistics on the different, yeah, just coll they were collating data, basically. And worked, they both worked to get the, um, the SUS law scrapped along with some other notable community leaders. <coughs> I, um, like Olive Morris and... Um, what years was that? This was in the 80s, like, um, yeah late 70s early 80s do y'all have any data now because you know that sounds like the three strikes law that was happening here in america where you know there was a, a mass a uptick in mass, mass incarceration during the early 90s do y'all have the any data era is that reagan say it again so for the mass incarceration is that like a biden clinton era thing or is that earlier was that reagan not Biden, it was Clinton. Clinton, okay, cool. Well, mm -hmm. he, Biden was a part of it too, but, um, yeah. you know, it was um, Clinton. Right. Reagan did some stuff too with the war on drugs. Predator thing. Yes, 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 that super predator. Where they, the 92 campaign was, was one of the most, it was supposed to be tough on crime, but it also was one of the most racist um, campaigning right. strategies of, um, you know, they're all racist, but, you know, um, one, it was a particularly viciously racist um, campaign to get him to be president. And he actually won. It's, ironically, for white women, this is one of the first times that their voting record leaned in favor of Democrats. Because cause usually they lean in favor of Republicans. But this is right. one of the first times that it leaned more in favor of Democrats because it was one of the most racist um, right. campaigns. And so, yes, do y'all have any data um, of how it's affecting black people now in the UK? Those, those decades of 
being arrested or did they have the same effects that maybe like ours did? Because now we're seeing yeah. just different, different data come out now that are proving how it affected the black communities. Are y'all seeing the same kind of impact? Yeah, we have um, the film 1500 and Counting, which is made by um, Sienna Bangura, which is about um, deaths in police custody. Um, and <clears throat> the fact that um, I think it's the IPCC, so that's the Internal Police Commission. They in, so it's basically the police investigating the police about um, death in custody. And so like there's the, the, our version of the FBI. The, um, of sorts, not quite, because I feel like the FBI is like. <sighs> No, you know, so, so you know, like, um, in <laughs> I'm showing all my propaganda now. I'm gonna bring up my law and order SVE knowledge. So, it's, <laughs> you know, when like, um, like, so a cop will like kill someone, and then like a department from within the police will come to like, yeah, interview them about whether they killed someone, whether they were justified, you know, they've got to speak to like, um, the attorney, um, whatever. It's basically, it's not quite the FBI. But it's it's it's, it's an it's an it's an it's a police like, it's, a, it's made like police officers who will come in and, and investigate police officers basically. Okay. But I don't uh, think we have that. No. <laughs> 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 police officers, police the police. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but the tea is that basically we've never had a police conviction for anyone who's died in police. Of course not. <laughs> 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 With regards to um, data collection, we have um, organizations like the Running Me Trust. We used to have the, um, the Commission for Racial Equality, which was disbanded and absorbed into an Equal Rights Commission thing, which was um, nefarious in its intentions. But anyway, so um, yeah, basically the data's there. And every few years, you know, they will have another investigation and there's more reports and then they're going to apply the reports. Um, but um, the one which really sparked everything off in terms of highlighting the institutional racism within these institutions was the um, Stephen Lawrence case. Um, Stephen Lawrence was a young black man who was murdered by a group of white thugs um, in 1993 and stabbed to death on the streets. And the police um, <clears throat> were really inefficient and inadequate in their investigation of that murder. It was, you know, they, I mean, the murderers, like, were, they were white supremacists. They were, you know, they were, yeah, they belonged to the British National Party or something. Or like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not committing my journalistic record hit here, but yeah, like properly, proper white racists. <laughs> you know? Proper white racists. <laughs> <laughs> and so as a result of um, the McPherson inquiry, I think it was, there were, yeah, basically they, um, they um, assessed the police and decided that they could say definitively that the police are institutionally racist. This was in the early 90s. <clears throat> this did not lead to um, any justice for the Lawrence family. Um, and in fact, a number of weeks ago, the... The case was downgraded once again um, 
because they said that they couldn't find the evidence. And so, yeah, the men who killed him are still very much out there. But living their also, lives, making more racist babies. There we are. Pregnant their racist <laughs> wives and continuing the legacy of their racism. Mm -hmm. But along with all of the violence that was, <clears throat> I was like, you know, encouraged to get used to in my childhood, there were just, I just remember the faces of, you know, these people, like it would appear on the news, you know, there would always be like this one picture. So, you know, the picture of Stephen Lawrence is indelibly imprinted on my mind. Also, um, Cynthia Jarrett, who is a black woman who was, um, Murdered by police. I think they were looking for her son in 1985. They were looking for her son? Yes. And this was on Broadwater Farm, which is a notorious estate in Tottenham in North London. I went to school nearby and I was raised nearby. And so... When y'all hear estate, that's the hood <laughs> over there. Yeah, it's not Downton Abbey. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> no. So here, it's when we hear this day, that's class and distinctive, baby. No, no orchards. Yes, yeah. they are. Yeah. The, the, the <laughs> estates in there in the UK is the price yes. the hood. Much more cement than apple cider, promise. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, basically the riots of 1985. Um, were a result of that murder, you know, it was another resurgence. <clears throat> but then there was also Joy Gardner in 1993, um, a Jamaican woman who came here, her family moved here, she, you know, she was def um, trying to become a citizen, but because the laws of immigration had changed in 1981, um, her family who had, because they're coming from Jamaica, which was a former colony, and so they come here and they were able to do it, but because she was coming later, the Thatcher government, you know, Reagan's best friend, um, you know, they changed all of that because they didn't want any more. Okay, we rebuild, come over off after second Y'all niggas need to stay yeah. in Jamaica. Thanks <laughs> <laughs> so much for the nurses. Thanks ever so much for that. That's for our nannies. <laughs> a bit too dusky. Okay, we've got one to three percent. We're good, thanks. So, um, so yeah, basically, there was um, a police unit that was formed, um, kind of similar to ICE, as And um, so, you know, she was in the appeal system. Like, you know, they'd try to support her stuff, but like they'd. She'd done what needed to be done. She'd report it to the police station, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, they went um, to her house in Crouch End. And um, yeah, they restrained her, tied up hands, feet, and then taped her mouth as well. And then she died of asphyxiation and stuff. And um, <clears throat> it's, I mean, One's traumatized all the time because, like, I think that like, every time. Wait, 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 give, me, give me some context here. Do they mm. use guns? So, no, I think they're able to carry guns now, but they don't use guns in the same. There are there aren't as many like shootouts as um, yeah, one would expect in the in the American context. You wouldn't see that as much here, like um. But, of course, we do have firearms, but nowhere near to the level that you guys do. 
and so the, thinking that that's quite interesting because even without the firearms in that situation, right. a black person still died. She was still died of asphyxiation. Yeah, yeah. When I think we're able to see the diversity, the nuance, the complexity in each other. You know that we see. You know, you got who girls you got the studios man you got um you know black girls that like to knit and black boys that like to dance you know so we understand that we are human you know but in the white imagination like they just see an animal that needs to be contained and <clears throat> so yeah i think that's why there are those similarities in spite of the absence of firearms, that we <clears throat> will still be treated as these beasts that need to be tamed. I was scared for my life, and as a result, I needed to put them in restraints. I needed to tape her up, etc., etc., etc. Tell me this with um, the the gun issue, like um, the upsurges that occurred in two thousand eight with um, Mark Duggan's death. You know, there was, um, there was just so much in the news about, you know, him not being from, you know, that he was like, that he was involved in stuff and whatever. And that when the police were chasing him down, they thought that they, um, they'd see him throw away a gun or whatever. <clears throat> but I think what is most revealing is that the British media, um, there's a picture that was used of him, you know, where his face is like all contorted. Like, it, it looks contorted. He's got like a really solid brow and he's leaning in. He's like looking like, <clears throat> you know, like he's got a lot in his mind. They made him look quite rough and serious. But I didn't know this until like this year. And the picture that they used of him was a picture of him at someone else's funeral. And, you know, so what they'd done is that the, he was holding this like flower bouquet, like a donation form, <clears throat> this person who passed away. And obviously it's not a day in which he's at his happiest. And so they'd use this picture of him, of him in his grief, you know. Intentionally. Right, intentionally to show that, you know, there's this like really mean looking black guy who like, you know, has been killed by the police, but you know, don't worry about that one. He was a bit of a bad egg and stuff. So we are really used to, um, being betrayed by media, we're really used to hearing of the police hunting us down like animals and um, hunting us. We've got the data, we've got the investigations, we've got all of that. And at this point, and there's a lot of stalling, and they've learned the talking points. And there's a whenever we send our best and our brightest. You know, we send on the Afua Hershes and the Akalas or whatever onto these panel shows, you know, to go and speak with these white pundits. And we're just, you know, what about so-and-so? And what about this? And what about that? And they're, they're, they're just, they're really obfuscating um, because they don't want to get to the truth. You know, they don't want to, they don't want to undo any of the um, injustices that have happened. They don't really... They, they don't want, they're, they're really scared of change. And I think they're really scared of vengeance. And I think 
something for me as a black Briton is that I'm always aware that my parents <clears throat> and my grandparents always um, mentioned what it was like when Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech. This was um, a white supremacist politician who warned um, white English people that one day that the black man will have the whip over the white man and that rivers of blood will flow in the streets. And even though it's not spoken of in, the, um, in any sort of, that's not cited anymore as a landmark speech, but for me, when I speak to white people and I hear them skirt around the issue of discussing race and stuff, I feel that's still one of their biggest fears. But, you know, if they let too many of us come over with all of our um, colonial grievances, that eventually um, we will seek vengeance for everything that was done to us. And, yeah, all of the riches that are hoarded, that are hoarded up in these various different <clears throat> institutions, the British Museum, the Bank of England, and whatever that... They're, they are scared of how far we will take that redistribution. Tell me about Naomi Percy mm -hmm. and keeping that story alive. Tell me about the story and then the actions has been taken to keep, to, taken to keep that story alive. Absolutely. I mean, the story of Naomi Percy most closely aligns with the stories of black trans murders in the US and Brazil. I think it came as a shock, to, the details of her murder came as a shock to us because um, before her murder, I think there was this belief that, you know, okay, it's terrible in the US, it's terrible in Brazil, it's terrible, but you know, not here, you know, not with our laws, you know, that we're a bit more civilized. Um, <clears throat> I found out about her murder in, um, I think it was March 2018. That's she passed away. Yeah. She was involved with, um, she was sexually involved with this um, white guy, and they were having like a cam sex weekender, basically. <laughs> so, so it was, um, you know, it was the Tina, it was the G, it was the, you know, all sorts. Um, and they must have been having a good time because they moved from one location to another. I think they were staying at her, I think, I think he probably came around to her flat or something. And then they moved to a hotel. And on the way to that hotel, they went via um, a supermarket. So yeah, they went to the supermarket to go and get supplies and then go somewhere and do a bit more. Um, this is a whole scene, like, you know, in terms of the, um, the impact of um, drug addiction on our communities is really severe. Um, and she was a fun time girl. She was a party girl. She, you know what I mean? As it goes. So this, um, yeah, her embarking on this sexual interaction was not something that she would have anticipated ending in her death. Now, no one knows, it was just the two of them in the hotel room, and no one knows how, what the conversation led to, uh, what, ha what happened 
to cause him to murder her. But basically, she was stabbed to death, rolled up in a carpet, and left to the side. Um, you know, I, one can assume that he's coming down, paranoia, etc., etc., etc. Her murderer calls um, his girlfriend and his mother, and this is a, this is a real good sign of like the impact of the media and transfer media on people. Because he knew to say that, you know, he had been kidnapped by, you know, this big black man. That he, <laughs> <laughs> there was all sorts, you know, he, they know the meaning of, what, of their words. You know, that this was some sort of Nigerian drug dealer, etc. So, yeah, all, everything that, you know, connotes danger in the mind of the white imagination he knew to employ. Misgender her, refer to her as African, focus on her, you know, whatever. Um, so the, so the, his girlfriend came along to clean up the mess. With yeah. The, yeah, so the girlfriend, he's, he's gone on this like drugs brender, you know, not told anyone where, where he's been, whatever. And then after he's murdered her, he calls up his girlfriend who drives down from a thing to go and um, clean up the murder scene. Um, so I think they do that. And then when that's happening, I think, um, yeah, he has a phone call with his mother um, where he's, you know, off on one. And his mother, hearing about all of the lies that he's telling, you know, been kidnapped, drugs, blah, 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 calls the police. And so the police then um, go to locate him, find Naomi's body, etc. Now, this impacted me as an individual because Naomi is me. Naomi was me. Like there was, <clears throat> there, yeah, there was a time when I was living her life. Um. Yeah, like when I was in the depths of my drug and alcohol addiction, this <clears throat> is the sort of scenario that made, yeah, that I was, this was, this was, this was what I was doing. And so, whereas other people would find it really easy to stigmatize her and say, you know, she had addiction problems, what she's doing, etc. For me, as someone who was able, to arrest my addiction and get out of that life, I can't then look at my sister and say, you know, oh, you're so much more beneath me. You know, I could very easily have died many a time. And so her death definitely held a mirror up to me as where I would have ended up if I hadn't um, have found sobriety. Mm. There's also the tea that we share. I want to clarify that a little bit too. In not finding sobriety does not mean that you deserve to die. Mm -mm. Not finding sobriety. um, You know, you have a right even in the midst of your sobriety to live. So they don't give anybody permission to get you together. Does not. It doesn't. And what I think... The, the, thank you for thank you for highlighting that actually thank you because that really does um, diminish a lot of the shame that I have but what I think 
the, I think the reason that I feel, that, feel the need to say that is because I've looked into the eyes of so many men and seen that murderous intent. But, you know, I feel like that the fact that I, when I was in rehab, I was telling people the stories about what my life was like before I got sober and stuff. There was one guy who said, you know, I can't believe that you made it through intact. You know, that you can be <clears throat> assaulted so many times, have so many rock bottoms, so many lucky escapes, and, you know, have got out and still feel whole. And so you're absolutely right. But, you know, just because of patriarchal violence and just the realities of what our lives are like, it's, it's always, it's still, I think it's part of me is always just like really aware that that definitely could have been me. Mm. It's also the tea that we shared a lot of sexual partners. You know, the men that I was talking to at the time all knew her. Um, and so I felt like I'd lost a friend that I'd never known. Mm. You know, um, I would have, yeah, and I only got to know of her in death, but I just felt really close to her um, in the aftermath. And because I was speaking to a lot of men who had known her um, in the biblical sense as well as whatever, I found myself having to be a counsellor for these men who are on the DL or whatever, but they just, at the end of the day, they were grieving this woman that they'd known and they had no one to speak about it with. And so I was in this unusual position of helping them to shed, um, just being a receptacle for their memories. You know, they couldn't, we helped her. We had a vigil for her in South London. And, you know, I was, you know, communicating with all my different black um, trans sisters in the community and stuff. So we were writing about her and and stuff. But um, it's it's kind of interesting that you say that because I remember this girl in Mississippi when I was living there. She had passed away, um, and I was talking to a guy that knew her. And mm. when I asked him about, like, you know, just. He had, he had been dating her. Like, he had brought her to his mom. Like, they were in, I don't want to say a relationship, but, but that's what it was. Like, it was, <laughs> like, it was, they was, you know, engaging. They had an entanglement, bitch. <laughs> it was an entanglement. And, and mm -hmm. my homegirl called me, and she told me that nobody came, none of her trade, her trade didn't come to her funeral. Mm -hmm. Mm. And he called me, and I was like, why didn't you go to Keisha's funeral? And he was like, oh, we wasn't on that level. And I was like, you are lying. And I think you're lying to me because you think, like, you have a chance with me. Like, mm. sweetie, I, I, I know you're lying. Like, so don't tell me that lie. Y'all were in an entanglement together. And right. it was more than just wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Because you had met, she had met your parents, you had right. met her people, you, you were friends with, you came over and her friends knew you, like y'all were in something more than just a hookup. 
and mm-hmm. I know how you are. So why didn't so be real with me? Why didn't you go to her funeral? And he said because everybody, he was like it was supposed to be on the low, and it was mm-hmm. getting bigger than what it what he intended for it to be. And he said he knew that if he went to that funeral, he would not he wouldn't be able to live that down. He was like I could just let it the rumor just died with the situation. And I was like, you are so fucking trash. And it made me feel so uncomfortable because I was like, I was thinking about people that I deal with and right. they wouldn't have the audacity, the, the, the courtesy, not audacity, the courtesy to go to my funeral. And I'd stop right. fucking with him. Like I literally stopped talking to him. I blocked him because I was so annoyed that this person that you were having sex with, that you were in, intimate relationship with not just um like literally not wham bam thank you ma'am like literally y'all laid up you spent a night Mm -hmm. at her house blah 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 i know the intimacy of y'all relationship and you couldn't even come to this lady's funeral get the fuck out of here i'm not talking to you you're whack yeah it's it's just it's really defining and since then i had to draw a line in the sand as a result Anyone who I'm dealing with or I'm dealt with, you know, um, I have their numbers. I give them to my nearest and dearest. If anything happens to me, call these people. I expect it. And I talk about it. I'm like, you know, um, unfortunately, as an individual, but also just as a community with the genocidal intent that's out there for us, you know, I'm just, I'm so conscious of being taken too soon, like wanting to live a long, happy life as a black trans woman is an audacious ambition currently. It's revolutionary. Right? And so, you know, I'm preparing. Um, Oh yeah, I prepare for that. It was also the case that, um, because for me as a journalist, I was um, commissioned to write um, about her sentencing, the sentencing of her murderer, um, which took place in uh, late 2018, yeah, autumn, autumn 2018. And so I was in Brighton at the time, and I travelled up to London to go to the Old Bailey, that's like our big um, national court in, in, in London. <sighs> And so, yeah, I was writing for Vice and my editor had said, you know, make sure you get quotes from like the neighbours and family and stuff. And it was raining buckets. You know, I got caught in the rain. I had to go and buy like a new jumper from Marks and Spencer's and stuff. And I bought a white jumper. (laughs) And so I went to the courthouse and you had to put all of your belongings in a shop down the road because you can't go in there with like your phone or anything. So I went into the sentencing and... I didn't plan it this way, but obviously I was the only black trans woman in that courtroom. <laughs> so when I went into the public gallery, you know, it's a bit higher than the courtroom. And the way that it made me feel was that I was the sort of like black trans angel, you know, who'd come in to witness these proceedings. Like the, mer- he, he couldn't look at me, you know, the prosecution, like, was, you know, just kind of started like fluffing up and stuff because just the what the way that I was positioned, they felt suddenly like I was be, like they were being judged in a completely different way. Um, her brothers turned up, um, and there was a neighbor who was just so rattled 
she was completely okay. And um, so you know, I was I witnessed this, and he got seven years. He won't serve that. But um, <clears throat> I couldn't do my job as a journalist that day because what I've been asked to do was to get quotes from the family and thing, and they were just they were so cut up. I just I just couldn't do it. I had to respect their spirit. I had to respect um, the mood of the room, and I just uh, yeah, I wasn't able to do what I needed to do as a journalist, but just. As a person, I felt like I did what needed to be done, witnessed the sentencing, was there for her. And, and since then, I've just tried to make sure that I can bring her name up whenever possible. I'm always looking out for She deserves so much. She deserves a plaque. She deserves a statue. She deserves to be remembered. She was charismatic. She loved the color yellow. She loved tennis. Um, you know, everyone I speak to is, was just so touched by her spirit. And so, you know, if I get to <clears throat> have a long time on this earth, the least I can do is to make sure that um, her name um, is remembered. Mm. Well, I think that's beautiful. I think that we all are hoping, you know, I'm uh, I'm I'm glad that y'all are not having the numbers that we are in 2020. We have already doubled the numbers in 2019, um, and I, I definitely want all of the trans women who are um, who have been murdered and taken from us um, too soon, absolutely too soon, to be memorialized and remembered. And you know, mm -hmm. I hope that you all does too. Um, you know, yeah. we're very, I mean, we speak about <clears throat> the connection that we have, um, as black trans women across the diaspora, like we are, we are very much affected, Like, Please don't think that you are on your own, I know like what it's, I know how hard it is, like seeing the disparity and the treatment of black trans murders in comparison to other people's. But, and I know that it's necessary to point out that it's crickets, I understand that. There's never crickets in my bedroom. There's never crickets over here. We care. We are just, I am overwhelmed by the impact that it's having on you all, the impact that it's having on me, on my mental health, um, it's, it's, it's just so rough. Yeah. And, um, you know, I can't, I'm, what's, what's, what's really hurting me now is that I'm getting the names mixed up and I can't keep track of detail. You know, I like, you know, like, is it, Malaysia book like when I heard about when I heard about Malaysia Booker I genuinely like I when I heard that she that she'd been killed, I was my brain wouldn't accept it. I was like, no, no, that video that happened a month ago 
and the, like that's two separate women. I refused to allow the two nexus of violence to fuse. I couldn't believe it. How? How? We all saw the video. We, you know, share, share, shares, GoFundMe's and cash apps, and you would hope you just. We just thought, okay, that was definitely the worst of it. To get over the humiliation of being beaten in a sun-drenched street, to have people coagulate around you, to be standing on a stage where you're hugged and like you know those beautiful lashes that she loved to wear. I just, I thought, okay. So she'll be taken somewhere. I know it's too, I just thought, I didn't think to investigate further. I thought, oh, okay. So maybe she's being, I don't know. I, I don't know the geography of America, but I thought, I don't know, like, maybe they'll, they'll move her to like Baton Rouge or somewhere, or like, you know, like she'll go to, I don't know, just somewhere, just somewhere different, somewhere, say, I'd like, I, in my mind, and like having the mind of a writer, I just saw her on an open road going somewhere safe. And hearing that was just, I, I can't make sense of it. I really can't. And like the escapism that is necessary for me right now, um, because. I love happy endings. I love meaningful endings. I'm always trying to find a room for it. But right now, I can't see it. I really can't. And it's, I think it's because, you know, we're being called to be there for people. People expect me, expect me to be out on these marches. Okay? <laughs> My babies, they, they expect me to be out on these marches, marching for these black men who really, who want me dead. You know, I can't, I, and who, who am I supposed to speak that to? But I'm supposed to go and have a little coffee with a white liberal and speak about the complexity. Is it this, do you know what I mean? Like, right. where am I, where's the next, where am, am I, I supposed to, am I supposed to talk to them, the black men? <laughs> or am I supposed to talk to the cis women who don't even want me in their space? Uh, like it, you, you got me emotional because like we, we're in Texas and we, mm. we were in the position to help and fucking right. allies put right. us, got in the way of us helping. And because they had more resources, they were, they were not trans, a trans-led org. And they had more resources than us and we couldn't do anything. But we had the capacity to do it. But because they were so fucking trying to be tokens they were trying to use her as a fucking, um, as this bullhorn of them doing the work when you motherfuckers don't even have the capacity to do the work because y'all don't have trans people empowered to teach right. you how to do it. Right. So I felt the same way. We didn't, we didn't know how this is fucking possible after that happened. Mm. But... You know, I think it's, it's so clear how, how fearful they are of our power. You know, that the idea of us in leadership positions, just it makes them shake. And so, like, they have this panicked reaction 
to the thought. I think people people feel that when we talk about centering black trans women, that we're that we're still in the theory stage. The amount of times when it's been very clear to everyone in the room that I'm the one with the most knowledge. Period. Period. Right? You have me on this fuck. I've been on panels, particularly in the past three months during this Mm -hmm. COVID shit. You Mm -hmm. have me on panels and it is clear, fucking clear, I'm the person who knows what needs to be done in this space when we're talking about this particular issue mm-hmm. like you got you got to get it together we know mm-hmm. how to fix our shit we just don't have the resources and the power to do it give it mm-hmm. up right yeah yeah absolutely it's <clears throat> i think it's it's really galling and even though at the beginning of this call i said that you know i i left the uk because I could, and I want to, but I also, I just got so sick of being snubbed. I got so sick, you know, of having to, you know, borrow this for and that, and, you know, applying for this role again, so I'm like being sidelined here and whatever, and, you know, during, during June, when, you know, we were getting, like, the white guilt money fund and stuff, you know, I did cash in, but at the same time, I knew how little it was in comparison to what I needed and deserved. So, I mean, we deserve more than a... We deserve a a lot more than, you know, three to six weeks of donations. It's not going to cut it. It's unsustainable. Yeah. Well, I don't want (laughs) to hold you too much. And I want to thank you for coming on and thank you for sharing your expertise about over there and and being in solidarity with us over here. I love you guys. Yeah, and supporting Marcus Wade. I just love that you support us and, you know, and you share. um, You're one of the first people that share our platform over in the U.K., I really and and me Diamond Styles on you know in telling me and things that I said so I really appreciate that thank you so much and literally a career high for me literally this is this is my Oprah's couch okay yeah yeah this 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 is my soul session like we're we're good. (laughs) Thank you, thank you, thank you. Tell them where they can find you. They can find me at um, Kuchenga, that's K-U-C-H-E-N-G-A on Instagram. And that's also Kucheng Cheng on Twitter. Um, but yeah, for like a more solid dive into my writing, you can just find me at kuchenga.com. And I will put all of those links in the bottom. And thank you all for listening. Um, yeah. Yeah, defo. Thank you so much, Diamond. This thank has been amazing. You, I loved it. <laughs> All right, loads of love. Tissacks. Well, that's it. Thank you for coming and getting a taste of Marsha's Plate. You can listen to us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Make sure you leave a review because we really need those five stars, y'all. And go like our Facebook page and leave some comments. We will be posting exclusive content every Thursday, so you definitely don't want to miss out. 
You can also follow us on Twitter and any other social media site at Marsha's Plate. If you'd like to donate or advertise with us, hit us up at diamondstyles at gmail.com. That's diamond, S-T-Y-L-Z, at gmail.com. And that's it for us, y'all. Bye. Bye-bye. You gonna say bye, Mia? Oh, bye, y'all. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Every little thing's gonna